All right. Well, as you know, we've decided to uh, stream some things, record some things instead of meeting together as a church during this time. And so what I've decided to do is, is for long as we need to do this, uh, perhaps go through the book of Romans. Uh, Romans may not take me quite too long to go through it. It depends on how long we're going to be doing this. But in any case, we wanted to provide some teaching for you and uh, to not leave you without it from our localized church and, of course, uh, to the elders uh, with whom you have a relationship. So uh, let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer, and uh, we'll start doing this you know, unusual thing uh, because of this uh, rare event that's occurred. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've given to us, even the trials that you give to us. Uh, we know that these things all work together for good, for those who love you, uh, that you are conforming us to the image of your son through these things. Uh, we as Americans don't have to go through a lot of trials like this, and so it's uh, a rare event that we, we as an entire nation have to actually go through a severe trial. And yet it's a good thing for us in the end, even though nothing is uh, joyful, no discipline is joyful, uh, nothing harsh is joyful in the time that we have to go through it. But we trust in you, and we love you, and we know that you love us, and that through these things you will continue your work to change us, uh, to push us on to a further holiness, to a further love of you, and further love of your people. And because of this, Lord, we glorify your name now as we seek to understand your word. Please illuminate it to us. Uh, help us to understand these things that we might uh, understand who we are and who you have made us to be in your Son. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, if you're turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we're going to be reading 1 through 17 today. And it'll be a bit of an introduction to Romans as well, but I do want to go through at least the 17 verses briefly. Uh, this, is, of course, is Paul's introduction uh, Paul has not been to Rome, he has not preached the gospel to Rome, and so he is going to uh, explain the gospel to, to them, and, uh, and the introduction will also explain that a little bit to us. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to, the be, appointed to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So Paul is addressing a question in Romans that we will see uh, throughout the book and how everything connects to this question. But ultimately the question is, is that if the Jewish people as Israel are the people of God, according to the promises of God given in the Old Testament, how can the Gentiles be the people of God without becoming Jewish themselves and without obtaining salvation through the observance of the works of the law. Now, Paul will address this. A lot of people think Romans is just about, well, it's just, it's just preaching the gospel and that's it. But it's a little bit more than that. Paul is going to preach his gospel, the gospel that Christ has given to him, to the Romans now. But it's going to be more than just the gospel. It's also going to tell us who we are. It's going to tell us what Christ has done. And it's going to lay out basically a theology for the Christian church that, is surround, or, or, that surrounds the gospel itself. So in verse 1, Paul begins to argue that God has set him apart as one who was sent by Christ himself to proclaim the good news. And so the gospel he preaches is not his human opinion. This is very important for us to understand. It is not his human ideas of religion that Paul is preaching to the Romans or anyone else. We live in a day when many people think, well, the word of God is a collection of people, a collection of humans uh, and human ideas about God. Humans who are inspired in a, an emotional sense, they were inspired not because they were being drawn along by God and spoken through um, as instruments of God, but rather they're, they're human ideas about God that are just you know, collected in the Bible. That is not the way the Bible presents itself. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying, hey, I have some good ideas about religion and my ideas are better than, than other people's ideas. He's saying that this gospel and what I'm about to preach to you comes from God and Jesus Christ himself. And so he is an apostle of Christ, a, a personal messenger sent out by Christ, by God himself, in order to preach this gospel to the people. In verse 2, he explains that it is not because uh, Christianity that includes the Gentiles is a new religion. So in other words, he's answering this question, how can they, the Gentiles, suddenly become the people of God? It's not because they're a new religion. These things were promised beforehand uh, through in, or in the, the prophets. So in verse 2, he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What did he promise? Well, the gospel, uh, the good news that will include the Gentiles was actually from the Scripture itself. So this is a continuation of what God has done, not something that is new. Verse 3, Christ himself is in the line of David. 
And so he is the Davidic Messiah according to his earthly right. So according to the flesh just means not, obviously it's not the sin nature of flesh. According to the flesh means his earthly right. His, in the earthly sense, he has every right. He fulfills the qualifications for becoming the Davidic Messiah because he is a descendant of David. However, in verse 4, he is given authority by the Spirit Uh, to be the son of God, not only in an earthly sense that the Old Testament kings were the son of God, but in a divine sense that he has all authority given to him, as we we, uh, remember from Matthew, in heaven and in earth. He is the son of God. He has appointed the son of God. In verse four, the Holy Spirit appoints him not to be the son of God, but to be the son of God in power. That is, he is now given all authority, as we just mentioned, in heaven and in earth. And so he is the Davidic Messiah, but he is also the divine Messiah, the God-man who now fulfills everything the Old Testament had promised to his people. In verse 5, it is on his behalf that Paul and the apostles have been given their apostleship, so that he would bring about the obedience to all of the nations through the means of faith. So now Paul is going to say, look, our, our job that we were given by Christ is not simply to make the kingdom of God out of the Jews. We were actually given our authority as apostles to go into all the world and make his kingdom out of all these nations. And so the people of God make up not just, are made up not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Verses 6 through 7, uh, this is what allows the Roman Christians the opportunity to become to, Jesus, uh, be, to belong to Jesus Christ because they were called by the gospel to have faith in him. They are loved by God, and so God and Christ greet them through Paul, showing once again that the letter Paul is about to write to the Roman Christians is from God and Christ and not from Paul's personal religious beliefs. Verses 8 through 15 relate the idea that Paul has wanted to come to them, having never preached the gospel to the Roman church. And he wants to preach the gospel to them and to encourage them and to be encouraged by them uh, with his faith and with their faith. Now, what's fascinating to us is that when we see Paul lay out the gospel in Romans, this is the gospel he wants to preach to them. And we often assume that, you know, something like he says in 1 Corinthians, where he says, you know, I I knew nothing among you but Christ and him crucified, that that means he preached some sort of very shallow, truncated gospel of Jesus Christ died for your sins, and that's all he said. Romans affords us the opportunity to see that Paul actually preaches a very full gospel in explaining all sorts of things, who Jesus is, why he had to die for our sins, uh, our state uh, as wicked men, um, uh, what God has done through Christ in terms of his resurrection and the power that it gives us today and the hope that it gives us for the future and what that means for us in terms of how we should live now and think of ourselves as the people of God. In other words, it's a very full gospel. It's nothing that is brought down to like four spiritual laws. I'm not saying that Paul didn't start with something like that. You might see that, you know, on Mars Hill, you've you've got, there's still kind of a fullness there, but something that's maybe reduced just as an introduction. But even when you look in the book of Acts, their preaching of the gospel is extremely full. 
It's nothing that's it's merely, you know, uh, the four spiritual laws or God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life or any of that sort of stuff. It, it's, it's a fullness so that people at the end of the preaching, they understand who Jesus is, that God has been doing this from the beginning, and they understand the implications of what that means. And therefore, after the preaching of the gospel in the, the book of Acts uh, or in other places, you have a repentance People understand, oh, this is, what, this is how I should respond to the gospel because now I've understood it. We have an issue in evangelicalism today uh, to where the full gospel is not preached or a very uh, reduced gospel is preached and then never explains. You never know who Jesus is. Uh, you never know the implications of the gospel. A lot of times you don't know why Jesus died for us. Uh, you don't understand how it uh, applies to your daily life. And so it's almost this idea that you pray a prayer, you accept Jesus, you go home, your life remains the same. That is not Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel has everything in it, as I just said. He's going to explain what these things mean for us, why these things were done, why God did this this way. Now, uh, verses 16 through 17 are really transitional verses. They flow from what was just said, but they also flow into this gospel that Paul is about to preach. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God that leads to repentance. The, the preposition ace here has the idea that something is going toward a goal, toward something else. That the gospel itself is what gives, uh, gives power to the individual to be saved. Now, this is important for us to understand. It leads to salvation. Why? Well, it leads to salvation because God is in it. God's going to reach through it. He's going to regenerate that sinner. He's going to bring that sinner to himself. And if we don't understand that, we start then preaching something other than Paul's gospel because we think that we save people through other means. And so if you think back in the Second Great Awakening with uh, the Phineas-type preaching where you have gimmicks and whatnot, trying to save people through these gimmicks, uh, trying to come up with you know, uh, music that's sentimental, uh, lots of excitement that gets people riled up so they make a decision for Christ, all of these things that are done um, in the 20th century, it's, you know, what saves you? Well, it's how nice I am to you. You'll, you'll see tons of people say, well, well, this is why people aren't Christians, because they see Christians arguing. And ultimately, yeah, Christians may not, you know, they should watch the fact that they're arguing. However, people are not Christians because they're sinners and they're wicked and they love the darkness rather than the light. It has nothing to do with, the, with what Christians are doing or how, how great our smiles are or any of that nonsense. It is through the word of God, the gospel itself, that gives power, that changes the individual, regenerates the individual, brings the individual to faith and causes salvation. So Paul now is going to argue, this is his gospel, this is going to be my kind of very uh, Romans in a nutshell summarization Paul's going to argue that everyone should not be categorized as Jew and Gentile, as though that had something to do with salvation, but rather as good and evil. And uh, what he's going to argue is that all of humanity starts out as evil, that they're all sinners in Adam, 
that because of what Adam has done, they are, uh, they are all apart from God. They're, he actually uh, characterizes them as murderers in Romans chapter 3. And then he'll go into detail about how the evil are made good by Christ, namely through justification through his death, and then even sanctification and glorification being conformed to the image of the Son. And that's how people are made good, not by becoming Jewish and following the works of the law. Sanctification and glorification are uh, through the power of the resurrection that has regenerated our spirits and enabled us to combat the desires of the flesh that has yet to be redeemed in the resurrection of the body to come. He will continue to argue that ethnic Jews, therefore, must believe in Christ, and if many of them do not, it is because God has decided to harden them in order to offer their promises to the nations instead. And he has a right to do so because he decides who will be and will not be his people. He decides upon whom he will have mercy and upon those uh, he, who he will harden. And so it is according to the choice of God who is in and out of Israel or who makes up his people and who does not. Of course, a remnant of ethnic Jews will, will be saved. Paul is one of them. The apostles uh, are uh, the remnant there. But this is another argument showing that Judaism is not the vehicle of salvation. It's not through the works of the law. And what he's essentially arguing is the reason why it cannot be through the works of the law is not because the law isn't great. It is. It's good. It reflects the justice and what love looks like from God. But the problem is us. We have a sin nature that doesn't want to do what's good. It wants, to, it's, it's impulsive. It wants to just feed itself. And because of that, uh, it doesn't react to the law in terms of going to, uh, in terms of obeying it and coming into an obedient relationship with God. Instead, it reacts in rejection of God, in uh, seeking sin all the more, and therefore the law cannot save us. So it cannot be through Judaism that we are saved. It cannot be through obeying the Old Testament law that we are saved, whether you're talking about ritual or moral. A lot of commentators, they try to make a distinction between them and say, you know what, uh, Paul's just talking about not obeying the ritual, but he wants you to obey the moral law in order to be justified. That is not what Paul is arguing. He's saying none of it will lead to the salvation of anyone. It must be through faith in Christ who accomplishes that for us. So the answer then is a change of nature. And the only way to change the nature is God has to regenerate us. He binds us to Christ, unites us to him, and through, it, uh, through him changes our nature so that we are regenerated by his resurrection power. We died with him and are reconciled to God because we're united with him on the cross, but we also were raised with him and given the power that he was given. We were given the power that he was given in the resurrection to now live a life that is in accordance with what God has revealed is good rather than evil. It gives us a tool to combat the flesh that still wants to do what is wicked. And so we'll discuss all that when we reach chapters 6 through 8. But ultimately, because this is the situation for every man, it really doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile because everyone's in the same boat. Uh, everyone has to therefore be saved the same way, and it's not through the law. 
And therefore, that's why, whether it be the remnant of Jews who believe or the bulk of the Gentiles who believe, they all must, be, they, they all must believe through Christ and be gra- the Gentiles then have to be grafted into the olive tree, that is Israel, through faith. And if Israel is to stay as the olive tree rather than to be cut down, it must do so through faith in Christ, accepting his gift. Well, that brings us up to basically chapter 11 in Romans. And from there, Paul's going to argue, you know what, as the people of God now, now that you understand you are the people of God and how you got there to be the people of God, whether Jew or Gentile, now you need to live as that new covenant community, uh, that community that loves one another by doing what's right to one another. But Paul will take the law now and he will divide it into three separate sections, the three separate sections you often hear about. And people say it's not biblical, but actually it's very biblical. He'll divide it between the moral law, the civil law, and the the ceremonial law. And he does that by saying Christians are obligated through love and because of their faith to love one another, to do good to one another. And he goes through, you know, the hospitality, the inviting of strangers who are Christians into your home, missionaries and whatnot. Uh, by serving one another, giving to one another when you're in need, all of those things brought out. That's the moral law. And everyone who is a person of God, who belongs to the people of God, have an obligation to that moral law. So there's, because we have new life, because we actually can live in accordance with Christ, because of the power of the resurrection, we can actually love one another, love God, and fulfill the law in that way. But the civil law that was made for Israel as a nation because God's people are no longer an individual uh, civil human nation on the the earth. The civil law is handed over to whatever governments uh, of the nations in which the Gentiles or Jews reside. And so he says the sword is given to the governments. We're not to take vengeance anymore. That's the right of the government to do that. So civil law, that belongs to the government, not to the church. Finally, in chapters 14 and 15, he will discuss whether or not Christians need to hold each other to the ceremonial law, whether they should partake in certain foods, or whether they should practice certain holy days. And Paul says, actually, the ceremonial law, because you're not physical Israel in the Old Testament, and those things were pictures, they're not really morals in themselves, and so each man can do what he wants with them. Some man, you know, some people consider uh, a day holy above all others, and other people consider every day the same. Some people can eat meat, some people can drink wine, whatever it may be. Some people can, some people can't. Did it shut off? Yeah. Some people are weaker than others. There are weaker brothers and stronger brothers. Weaker brother just means that they have not come to a knowledge that, or, or, or come to a place where they have the ability to control something, uh, to think about something correctly. And so those who are stronger are not to berate them or judge them. They should work with them, work around them, help them understand and learn, uh, but not force them to partake in things they don't want to partake in. Same thing with the weaker brother. Uh, the weaker brother should not judge the stronger brother for partaking in things that are moral. They're just created things, whether they be food or holy days or what have you. And so Paul is going to argue that as the new Israel made up of Gentiles and Jews, the new people of God, that our obligation is to live as Christ, conformed to the image of Christ, 
but we don't have a civil obligation in terms of being a government where we have to, you know, enact like, you know, executions or something. And uh, the ceremonial law is really up to each man. How he worships Christ in his own way is fine because there's no obligation there. Now, what Romans is going to allow us to do is it's going to correct people on two fronts. Uh, I mentioned before that there's a misunderstanding of the gospel that has led to one of two major errors, really in the time of Paul and throughout church history. And those two errors are those of antinomianism and legalism. Now, let me define antinomianism for you. Antinomianism is really when one replaces God's revealed law with his own. He lives in accordance with what he thinks is right. If you remember the Bible's description of God's covenant community when it had gone astray in the Old Testament, the people are said to do what is right in their own eyes. They think themselves to be good people who are living according to the spirit of God and are likely living instead according to the unguided morality of the culture. So notice the people are not doing what's wrong in their own eyes. They do what's right in their own eyes. They have their own morality and they live accordingly rather than according to the morality of God. A lot of people think that the gospel frees them up to do this because it's a free gift that's given. That means that I'm no longer obligated to really follow God in any way because it's just a free gift that's given. What they fail to notice is that it's a free gift that's given through faith allegiance with Jesus Christ so that we are united to him and that the program of God is not to leave you there, but to conform you to the image of his son. So it is not simply to free you from the bonds of the law so that you can do what you want or live in accordance with what you think is good, but rather that you become like Jesus Christ according to what the Bible thinks is good and what is in accordance with his character. Now, the other one is legalism. Legalism actually is often not defined well by many people. Uh, Most people think, due to the antinomian tendencies above, that legalism is anything that is restricting, that is not in accordance with another person's moral code. So in other words, someone says you should do this and not that, they're legalistic when you don't think you should be doing that. Uh, That you you don't agree with their morality, so when they try to force that on you, that's legalism. That's, uh, that's not the way legalism is defined in the Bible. Legalism instead is the idea that one can be saved through the law, the doing of the law, through the moral code. It is the idea that one is saved by being a good person rather than the idea that Paul presents here that one becomes a good slash righteous person by being justified by what Christ has done. And then does good as a result of being saved, not as a means of being saved. So legalism confuses uh, the gospel or it completely disregards the gospel. When in reality, a lot of people call legalism what, what the Bible would teach is just the outflow or sanctification of being redeemed. Paul will correct both of these, these views uh, in his gospel throughout the book as we go through it. Now, I, I do want to give one analogy as we end, and, uh, you know, I, I can't uh, do a sermon without quoting a movie or a cheesy movie, so I'm going to go ahead and quote, or not quote a movie, but I'll, I'll allude to a movie here. I was watching the end of the Justice League movie last night, and it's a horrible movie, uh, not well done, but it was sort of funny in that uh, 
you had these four powerful superheroes. You had Batman and Wonder Woman and Cyborg and Flash, all trying to overcome the the enemy. I forget his name, trying to take over the world. And and at the end of the day, they were just powerless to do it. They were all powerful, but they were powerless to do it. And then in the end, Superman shows up and kicks the guy's butt. Completely does it pretty much on his own. Showing that the other four were completely superfluous. They were unneeded, insufficient to do the job. And all they really needed was Superman the whole time. Now, anyone a fan of Superman will know that that's all you need. Uh, All the other superheroes are worthless and unneeded. And you wonder why they were even made. But, uh, but Superman's all you need. That's essentially what Paul is arguing in Romans. Works of the law do not defeat the problem. Because the problem is that we need to be regenerated. We need a new nature. So all works of the law do is they come against our sinful nature. And they bind us more in that sinful nature. And they lead us either into despair or into further rebellion. The works of the law, therefore, cannot transform anyone. Instead, what we need is we need Christ, who is the Superman, who is the true hero in the story, who will come along, live out the works of the law himself, and by binding himself through federal headship to us, when we have faith in him, we are united to him, he saves us. Not because we are saved ourselves, but because he is the one who's capable of overcoming the, the sinfulness of humanity uh, through his good work. And so Paul is essentially arguing the works of the law not only are insufficient, they're unneeded. They actually work against us in many ways. What we really need is Jesus Christ. And so it will be Christ who saves us. It will be Christ who begins the work. It will be Christ who completes the work. And we will join with him in being uh, united to him through faith as the spirit works in us to become conformed to his image so that we might truly be the people of God. Well, that's Romans in a nutshell. We'll be going through it. We'll begin in verse uh, 18 next week of chapter one. Please read ahead if you can. And uh, we'll, we'll pursue this great argument that Paul is making, really his magnum opus uh, of a theological work. Please pray with me now. Father, we thank you so much that even though we're not able to meet together, we can still uh, meet in this, this way uh, through, through social media, Lord, uh, through these new tools that you've given to us so that we are not without your voice in this time. Uh, we know there are a lot of preachers that you know, our people could listen to during this time, Lord, but we wanted them to listen to us as well, to have our voices still in their lives because you have worked so much through us. Uh, on their behalf. We pray for them. We pray that they would not fear in this time, uh, that they would actually remain faithful to you, to love one another, to fellowship in any ways that they can. And uh, I pray that you give us a heart, Lord, during this time to preach the gospel to those who are in fear, who do not know you, the true gospel, and to explain the gospel, Lord. Uh, Let us not act like we're doing drive-by theology when we preach the gospel. We have time to sit with people. We can help them understand who Christ is, who you are, what you have done through him, what the cross means, why it was necessary, what the resurrection does for us in this life and in the hope to come. Oh, Lord, we, we pray that we be faithful priests as we learn the gospel well through your servant Paul in the book of Romans 
and not just hear it for ourselves, but teach it to others that you might be glorified in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.